If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There is a great distinction between being accessible and writing one of the awful books saying it was a bit like um, the opening festivities of the Olympics um, and the Romans looked on amazed. Something um, a bit like Lady Gaga in drag crawled across the Colosseum. That was Robin Lane Fox discussing popular history. I still remember it. It was a kind of one of those aha moments where you kind of think, who's actually going to read this? <laughs> um, who am I writing for? <laughs> Um, and that then led me to think a lot more about how I can tell a story like that and how I can make it accessible. And that was Nicholas Vaxman talking about how he wrote his recent book. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of June 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Last night, the two winners of this year's prestigious Wolfson History Prizes were announced at a ceremony in London. The prizes, run by the Wolfson Foundation, recognise the best in accessible history writing over the past year and are typically awarded to two books of history or biography that the judging panel feel are of particular merit. The 2016 winners are Oxford University classicist Robin Lane Fox for his book Augustine, Conversions and Confessions, and Nicholas Vaxman of Birkbeck for KL, A History of the Nazi Concentration Camps. A little while before the prizes were officially announced, I had the opportunity to meet Robin and Nicholas at the Wolfson Foundation offices in London to find out more about their books and their views on history writing. And the first voice that you'll hear after my opening question is that of Robin Lane Fox. What was your reaction on finding out you'd won this prize? A complete amazement. At first I thought it was a joke and then I read the letter twice and then of course I thought it was absolutely obvious I had to win. There was no alternative. <laughs> and then I realised when I read the booklet that the it covers every period, 
Uh, but I'm absolutely delighted that I think for the, the first time it's gone to a book in the period of the later Roman Empire, late antiquity, of which I am, a, I describe, a marginal occupant. And I don't think there's been a winner from that area, which is one in which historians based in Britain have really transformed the picture in the last 70 years. So I see it partly as a prize for um, all that's changed in my lifetime. How about you, Nick? I was obviously equally delighted and uh, disbelieving. Frankly, until the ceremony actually happens, I'm keeping my uh, options open. And kind of, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll believe it when it happens. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted. It's the most wonderful, prestigious prize I could think of. And I'm particularly delighted that it's a prize which is also about writing and trying to bring a topic to, to a wider readership. Um, I, I tried and struggled throughout the book to try and um, make this story, it's a story of the Nazi concentration camps, um, readable in a way that despite the subject matter, which leads people quite often to put the book away again, uh, to also make them pick it up again and to continue reading a story which is often unbearable. And so what do you two think are the important things to do to make a, a history book accessible? Uh, write it properly. Um, be absolutely clear what you want to say and also rewrite it uh, to read books by people who can write. Uh, there are not very many of them um, because most people who write history are either writing in desperate hurry and doing something I detest called dumbing down. There is a great distinction uh, between being accessible and writing one of those awful books saying it was a bit like um, the opening festivities of the Olympics and the Romans looked on amazed, something um, a bit like Lady Gaga in drag crawled across the Colosseum. I, I just find that patronizing to the reader. Because something I believe very strongly is that there are many general readers now in Britain, highly educated, who do even sometimes buy these books and they don't want to be patronised by people trying to pretend you can only understand this if it comes down to the level of Game of Thrones or soccer. And people make that mistake too often. Uh, write very clearly, try not to simplify, and that means writing, rewriting, rewriting, I'm sure you'll say exactly the same. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the writing process for a book like this, especially a big book like this, is very, very complex. Um, I mean, from beginning to end, it took me, I think, 10 years. I don't know how long you worked on, uh, on yours. <laughs> well, it, on and off. Um, I never thought I would do this. And they set their own length, I would say, 15 years. Yeah, I mean, it's I, kind I of... in between. I mean, these are difficult, long, long births. And I think structure is very, very important, kind of writing discipline. Um, I mean, I had a very clear idea early on of how I wanted the book overall to look in terms of its shape. For me, it was also a question of trying to weave in as many personal stories and perspectives as I could. Ultimately, the aim in my book was to try and tell the history of the concentration camps through the eyes of those who suffered it and those who made it and those who looked on from outside. So we have a kind of a chorus of voices kind of throughout the book. And I wanted to try and take myself back as a writer, not constantly tell the reader how to feel. I mean, especially in a in an incredibly charged subject such as the Nazi concentration camps and the Holocaust, I thought it was important for me as an author not to constantly tell a reader how to feel and how to react. Yeah. 
but to try and let people have their own responses and reactions to the material. But it was crucially important to me to have as many of these different voices in there as I could integrate into the text. And do you do you feel that all historians should be trying to write for the general reader, or is it okay for only a subset to do that? Oh, of course not. I mean, there are absolutely crucial works on certainty, which are, I depend, um, which have been written at a proper level of um, dedicated scholarship. And that's absolutely essential, as all uh, prize givers, judges, and prize winners know, that in no way is that subverted. But I think there are people who could... Um, realise that they're not just writing to have a book on the table to get a tick in the margin and possibly um, be given two years sabbatical. And they could think more carefully about accessibility and presentation. But I think that some history writing, particularly in the ancient world, uh, has woken up to that more, sometimes too much perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not easy. Um, It's so important to read more. But my general view is, at the minute, uh, novelists are vastly overestimated. Of course, we love them, and they have to sit down and imagine, and it's got to be coherent, but they don't have to worry about footnotes. They don't have to worry about getting it accurate in any way. They're absolutely idealised. It would be quite extraordinary when people look back at the volume of crap that appears between 1970 and 2015, and were somehow taken seriously. And historians uh, in this country are the admired historians through Europe. And I think that the prize is an encouragement to that absolutely fundamental fact. Very seldom will you find books by great scholars, of course, in Germany or Spain or Italy being translated into English. But repeatedly, you will find books by great English historians in the bookshops abroad. And like the book on the concentration camp, it is English-based authors who in some cases have given the past back to European countries. Uh, And we are admired for it. We're admired for biographies. Of course, we're admired for novels. And I understand that. I mean, the French can't write a novel. They just can't begin to. The Germans write history books that are bound in black with gold tool spines and look like a sort of assembly manual for car parts. They're incredibly accurate and good, but they're totally unreadable or unusable. But we aren't so specialised. And if I had to look at something that a prize like this has done, I would think over the last 45 years, it has to keep alive and carry the torch for what actually is a major cultural presence of Britons abroad. I mean, in in my case, there is a huge amount of very important um, academic scholarship, especially in Germany, on the history of the Nazi concentration camps, which have emerged over the last 20, 30 years. Really path-breaking work on specific camps or prisoner groups or aspects of the camps. And without this kind of scholarship, uh, it would have been absolutely impossible to even embark on a comprehensive history. So we depend on this academic scholarship. And the best or the widest of that scholarship on the Nazi camps is coming out of Germany now. There was this long silence by scholars after the war, and that has completely flipped. Um, It is true that kind of certainly the German tradition, I think there used to be at least kind of in in, in certainly the 70s and 80s um, and 90s, some kind of maybe not distrust, but you know, you wouldn't necessarily want to 
ride too popular uh, as an academic historian there because it might be seen as dumbing down in some way. And I think there is a, a, a real tradition in Britain of trying to write serious academic history in an engaging way. I mean, for me personally, it's not necessarily something kind of that's taught to you as a historian. I mean, when you do your PhD, kind of you don't really, I mean, no. you learn about source criticism and methodology and mm. many other things, but not necessarily about writing. And I had this moment um, during my first book, um, which kind of grew out of my PhD thesis, where I kind of, I mean, I still remember it. It was a kind of one of those aha moments where you kind of think, who's actually going to read this? <laughs> um, who am I writing for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that then led me to think a lot more about how I can, how I can tell mm. a story like that and how I can make it accessible to people who wouldn't necessarily pick up um, a book on Hitler's prisons, as my first book was. I mean, that's not necessarily a title, you know, you, you pick up at the, at the airport. Um, so, you know, how do, we, how do you make this kind of story interesting without compromising kind of on, on, on the scholarship. One place where I, if I've learned even a little bit to write, and English isn't my first language, if I learned a little bit to write in that way, I think it was probably partly also through the New Yorker, which I mm. kind of, so, so, you know, very, very, very good um, factual um, journalism, which also has a knack of making topics which you wouldn't necessarily um, think at first sight, you know, um, am I really going to read a kind of a story about an orchid thief? Um, you know, yes, I am, because it's amazingly well written. So I think, you know, we can learn from other disciplines as historians in that way as well. So do you both find that you're inspired as much by journalists, um, sort of literary writers, as you are by other historians in your work? Uh, I wouldn't say personally I'm inspired by journalists for any of this work at all, no, though I admire many of them. I think that uh, the style of history books is an interesting turning point. There's no doubt that the bullet point brutality of uh, stupidity of Wikipedia has greatly concentrated people's attention span in younger generations. And I'm the first to admit I haven't taken that on board. It doesn't stop people engaging with the books. I was brought up to write Greek and Latin uh, until the age of 21. I was a mosaicist. Um, who had a very strong philological underpinning. Uh, we used to turn the personal advertisements of the Times newspaper into Latin verse. That was the sort of first thing we would do. But that taught you construction, obviously sentence formation. I'm sure repeatedly I failed in this. But a new age wants it brutally clear and quick. And I'm not sure how we're going to react to that uh, because history doesn't easily lend itself to the busy man's brutal question, is it nice to know, is it good to know, or do I need to know it? Uh, and somebody said that to me the other day, and I thought, damn you, I want you to go on a, a long train journey. When you shut the end of my book, if you ever get there, I do think you'll find that the landscape looks remarkably different to what it did before you began. But, you know, I'm not a high-speed train. I mean, I, I, you know, I look for, I certainly look for inspiration and ideas, um, you know, in all sorts of, in all sorts of different fields. It's not mechanical. I mean, you don't kind of say, oh, kind of, I'm going to pick this from here and that from there. But I, I do try and read literature. I kind of, I see plays. I watch a lot of films if I can. I read kind of a lot of narrative, um, nonfiction, uh, journalism and other things. So it's, it's you know, and, and I do think that, 
it's going to leave some some mark on how you write. I mean, you know, I'll give you one example. The and that might seem far fetched. There was a um, quite influential Danish film movement in the kind of was it the 1990s or 2000s, the dogma movement, and kind of they they had certain rules which they set set themselves. So it was like a kind of a constraint which they put on themselves, and I think it was you know, kind of to do with, you know, only using natural lighting and things like that. Um, and the argument there was that actually by putting certain constraints on you deliberately, um, it gives you a certain discipline, mm. which then helps to shape your work in ways in which you might mm. not have expected. And in my own work, I had a very, very clear structure, for example, in the book. So there were X many chapters. Each chapter has... Um, three subchapters. Each subchapter then has five sections, um, and each of those sections can't be longer than X number of words. Now that might seem very mechanistic, but it also led me to think very hard about what can I include, mm. what can't I include, where does the narrative have to move next, what do I need to get into this chapter. So in a way, it stopped me from this huge story of the Nazi comes from running away with me. I mean, I could have spent, I mean, the book is 300,000 words or something in that region. It could have easily been twice that if I hadn't been disciplined in that way. So in hindsight, I think that was actually a, a, one of the choices which, which worked reasonably well. Uh, I could learn a lot from that. <laughs> um, I think I look back with terror at Augustine um, because I knew at the last point Two chapters of the book were going to be very difficult. Uh, in my view, others have occasionally suggested it, but not quite in the same way. He composed his masterwork, about which I'm writing, The Confessions, uh, in one great sweep. Great French scholars think it took him possibly five or six years, and I was going to argue it took eight weeks. And I thought about this for years, and I'd got all the pieces together in my mind, and I thought, how am I ever going to write this? So I woke up at five in the morning, and I reread um, five or six cardinal bits of uh, newly found sermons that were important to me. And I read a bit of the last book of the Confessions, which can seem to people quite impenetrable. I, it is very difficult, but I think I begin to understand it. And at 2 p.m. in the afternoon, I started writing in the basement of the New College Library. I didn't eat anything, and I continued without any kind of a break, and I wrote continuously... Until Not four, for eight weeks. No, for, for, till 4.30 in the morning. And then I got up feeling quite shaky, and I got into my car to drive home, and I hadn't put the lights on. So I was stopped by the police, and they tried to breathalyze me. I said, you can't breathalyze me. I haven't eaten or drunk anything. I've been writing a book. And I said, oh, we've heard that before. Um, and let me off. And I got home, and I crawled into bed thinking, I'll look at this in two or three days' time and see. And I realized, to my amazement, that I had finished at 4.30 a.m. on the saint's day in the calendar that is St. Augustine's. So I'm extremely scared of this, uh, as I had been preparing to write this chapter for about four years. And I've been going round and round thinking, uh, at some point I've got to do it. And honestly, except for a few small changes and a great friend who pointed out there were some mistakes, um, I haven't changed it. So... Was he urging me on? Uh, <laughs> it can happen. Um, how do you write? Do you, uh, I wish I had had divine inspiration. It like doesn't that. often happen. <clears throat> it doesn't often happen. Well, it's kind of, I mean, 
I think it might be, you know, I admire those writers or I wish I was one of those writers where it just flows out. Oh, there aren't any. And it doesn't kind of, it doesn't doesn't quite work like that for me. So kind of there's, like you said at the beginning, there's a lot of rewriting. I mean, I tend to write something and then look back at it the next day and try and sharpen it up. And then I go through it again and again. So it's a continual kind of editing and self-editing process. I mean, I think that's maybe one of the skills that is underestimated in writing bigger narrative books like this is the ruthlessness towards yourself as a writer. I mean, you need to, if something doesn't work or if something is extraneous, you need to cut it out and you need to kind of, you need to really, really go through it with a red pen. Do you, and obviously your books are set something like 1500 years apart. Can you see any commonalities between the two of them? Well, I would if I'd read his. (laughs) Um, I suppose you could say fundamentally it would be um, the question of evil that there is an evil uh, disposition in us to which, uh, in Augustinian terms, uh, the soul can fall away by making a false choice, and we are predisposed to do it, in Augustine's view, obviously very scripturally shaped by uh, the original sin in the Garden of Eden. But some of us might wonder if there's some genetic element in the uh, animal makeup of man as one view. I'm not sure I altogether share it. But I think on the question of evil, Augustine famously uh, explores what seems a totally trivial affair, that he stole pears as a boy from an orchard with a gang of friends. But when you actually understand this hyper-perfectionist, very ascetic, monastic-minded Christian, his exploration is that he simply did it as evil for evil's sake. Now, I don't really think, I don't know enough about it, that people in concentration camps were always doing it as evil for evil's sake. Some of them believed that they were going to make the world possibly a better place. I'm simply guessing. Some of them, of course, would famously say, I'm doing what is ordered, otherwise something will be done to me. But I do think Augustine would have a very, uh, obviously, concerned and worried dialogue on this question. It's something which is obviously kind of very interesting kind of for me as well, and it's something where I so I'll look, very much look forward to reading your book too, um, because obviously philosophers and many other scholars have looked at evil uh, from very different perspectives to, to historians. And for me in the book, one of the key questions is, of course, why do the perpetrators do what they do? Why do people do things which are, to us, unimaginable? Um, and what became fairly clear to me early on was that just as there isn't a typical prisoner, there isn't a typical perpetrator either. Mm. Different people are driven by different motivations at different times of the Nazi dictatorship. You have those who see their service in the camps as a kind of career, as a profession. There's one camp commandant who's so proud, even on his private notepaper, he has a kind of sign at the top saying, concentration camp commandant. Um, so these are people who rise through the kind of, you know, they, they make careers, they live, they, they, they think oh, yeah. of themselves as, as living. still do. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there's a kind of, there's a, a quote I have in the book somewhere by a wife of a concentration commandant who's interviewed kind of decades after the war. And she's, you know, she's reminiscing about the, the wonderful time she had. I mean, this is what Hess, the commandant of Auschwitz, writes about as well in his memoirs, how, how wonderful his kids had it in, in, in Auschwitz, that are kind of just a wonderful time. Um, so there is that, there's careerism, there's certainly those who enjoy the violence, but these kind of sadists uh, are in a fairly small number. Others, 
again, believe in Nazi ideology, of course. They do it because they believe they're doing the right thing. I mean, it, it's wrong to think of some of these men, and they are predominantly men, as, as nihilists. Uh, I mean, somebody like, mm. like Heinrich Himmler, the head of this system, mm. had in his own mind a yeah. very clear moral <laughs> Uh, idea. It was just that his moral compass was completely perverse. Um, but these people don't see themselves as nihilists. And then you've got those who are dragged along in a way by false ideas of comradeship, by the wish to fit in. I mean, certainly the work of social psychologists has, imp- has been important in trying to make us understand more why people get dragged into things or, or commit deeds, which even a few weeks earlier, they, they, they would have never thought themselves as capable of doing. I'll give you one example. There's a, there's a doctor who arrives in Auschwitz and as S doctor, and he is um, asked to perform a selection at the ramp in Auschwitz or take part in this. This is where incoming deportation trains are divided by the SS into those who are, those Jews who are murdered straight away in the gas chambers and those who are picked out for murderous slave labor. And this man, uh, Hans Delmont, breaks down. Uh, he, he, he cries, he gets drunk, um, and he says, I can't do this. Um, and, you know, I think he asked for a transfer to the front. And within a fairly short period of time, he is doing it. He's doing it because he's getting used to it. He's getting accustomed to it. He has a mentor, a man called uh, Josef Mengele, who kind of takes him under his, under his wing and makes him realize that what he's doing there is important uh, somehow for Germany's future. They transferred Delmont's wife to Auschwitz, so he has a bit of a kind of a home life there, stabilizing in some way. Mm-hmm. And within a fairly short period of time, this man is selecting people, victims, innocent women, children, old people for the gas chambers. Um, and you've come across, you come across a lot of these stories where people in a very short period of time get accustomed and used to doing the most heinous crimes. I should also say that, of course, um, the reverse side of the spread of Christianity in the later Roman Empire uh, is rather a sharp, cold view of the Jews. Um, But I would urge people to realize that Augustine would not have um, actually uh, sympathized in any way with the elimination of the Jews as somehow murderers of Christ or whatever. That would absolutely not be his position. And he would concentrate quite often, being guided, obviously, by Scripture, which he thought wrongly was the word of God, uh, on the words of the Psalms, uh, slay them not, that they be scattered. Um, Better to scatter the Jews all over the place as evidence, and at the last judgment matters will be sorted out. But any idea that the early church would have engaged in an extermination policy, but this is something I'd like to ask you. Of course, I rushed off and read the reviews of your book and felt unbelievably honoured <laughs> to be associated with you. But what is the difference? I'm, I'm really, I've been once to Dachau, which I sure. thought was the most ghastly place I've ever been, but I've never forgotten it, um, way back in 1965. What's the difference between a concentration camp and an extermination camp? I think a lot of us don't realise that. Well, it's a, it's a really, really good question. Um, and there is still a lot of confusion about this. Death camps um, like Treblinka are set up in the Holocaust with a single function. They only have one purpose, and that is to kill as many Jews as quickly as possible. Mm. Um, and these pure death camps kind of in the so-called general government in occupied Eastern Poland, Nazi-occupied Eastern Poland, um, 
uh, murder some 1.5 million Jews in 1942 alone. And there you do not have selections like in Auschwitz uh, um, because pretty much everybody on board of these deportation trains is doomed to be exterminated on arrival. So these death camps have this only this one function. Concentration camps from the beginning are multifunctional sites. Right. Early on, they serve the purpose of breaking the opposition. Later on, there is the function of uh, supposedly cleaning Germany of, in inverted commas, uh, asocials and other social outcasts. It becomes a site of forced labor, of human experimentation, and so on. So sites like um, Dachau go through a huge change in a very, very, very short period of time. I try and explain that in the book. I try and make that accessible to the reader in the book because the, the product starts with three scenes from Dachau at different times. Oh, right. Um, that awful brick so, chimney. I can still see it. Well, and yeah. you can have, but the book starts with Dachau in, in, on the 29th of April, 45, the Day of Liberation. And these are all the images we, mm. we most associate yeah. with the camp. So you can have, you know, dead bodies sprawled mm. all over the camp, half um, dead survivors mm. staggering towards the American liberators. But I then go back in time uh, to 1939, the last day before the outbreak of war, where Dachau looks completely different. Um, the prisoners are in these striped uniforms. There is only men, kind of later on there was a woman. Almost all of them are German and Austrian, not from all over Europe. There is no mass death in the camp. I mean, in that kind of, mm -hmm. in the last month before the outbreak of war, from memory, I think four prisoners die. Um, and it is incredibly ordered. I mean, it's a kind of, it's a brutal, violent discipline, but it's the order of SS terror. Um, and then I fast forward, uh, fast back in a sense to the first day in the camp uh, in spring 33, where the camp looks again completely different. We've got 100 prisoners. They treat it quite well. There are no uniforms. Um, they eat with their captors who are policemen, not SS men. Um, and none of them think they're going to be there very long. So though the Third Reich lasts for only a very, very brief period of time, there are huge changes. And you can see these changes in places like Dachau, um, Dachau is the only one of those camps which lasts right. all the way through the Third Reich from beginning to end. I didn't realize that when I saw well, it. Well, Auschwitz is kind of, by the time Auschwitz is set up in 1940, Dachau is more than seven years old. Mm. Um, and Auschwitz is set up, again, Auschwitz is a multifunctional site, uh, a site with many functions. And it is the only one of those concentration camps which then turns into a major death camp of the Holocaust. So in a sense, Auschwitz is unusual and that it remains a concentration camp where you have all these different functions, kind of slave labor, breaking prisoners, breaking the opposition, um, uh, human experimentation and so on, and also a death camp of the Holocaust. And that's why you have these selections in Auschwitz on arrival of oh. Jewish deportation trains. You don't have that um, in the same way in Treblinka. When, I, I don't know the period well, uh, the chilling phrase, the final solution, mm. is one I'll ask we all use the whole time. Um, when was that um, enunciated, i.e. what we want to do is just kill them all? Because that must have changed the whole purpose. Well, it's a, that's, that's a really, really interesting question. I mean, the, 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 for the Nazis, the, the, the Nazis don't come to power with a very, very clear... No a plan of what they will do. And that goes for, you know, a lot of different mm. policy areas. And it goes for the concentration camps too. They have to, in a sense, invent the concentration camps right. and reinvent them over time. And the what the Nazis think of as the final solution changes over mm. time as well until it then takes on mm. the form of um, the extermination of European Jews during the Second World War. 
Um, and because this is a process, camps like Auschwitz go through a process as well. I mean, the, the, I try and describe in the book how Auschwitz turns um, in a period of several months uh, in, an, in a quite a talk way mm. from a concentration camp, which is mainly at that point holding Polish political prisoners and Soviet POWs mm. to a death camp of the Holocaust. I mean, in, in 19, at the beginning of 1942, there are proportionally very few Jewish prisoners in Auschwitz. Um, right. You know, by summer, you have deportation right. trains yeah. rolling yeah. then from yeah. different parts of Europe. So it's a, it's a process. Right. And I guess one of the, I mean, that, that's maybe where we can open it out as well. And that must yeah. go for yeah. you too. Um, we one of the difficulties in writing history in general, of course, is that we know how it ends yeah, and where it goes. But you have to always yeah. look for the untaken roads as well. And, and Yeah, I quite agree with you. I always say, and I'll say it again, that certainly in the ancient world, historians must resemble the god Janus, who has a head looking forwards and looking backwards. And it's not possible, nor should we, suspend uh, the views that we bring to the topics under consideration. But you can't just write presentist history and attack Julius Caesar for not being vegetarian, um, as it might be. Uh, it may happen in 30 years' time. I'm sure there could be a massive slaughter on every ancient figure for eating meat. You must keep in balance the views they held at the time. And always one test to me is was the were the significant voices at the time which were strongly against, on moral grounds we may now share, what was being done. And in your case, there certainly were, and many of them died for it. Uh, obviously, we're not you know, uh, too worried. I mean, there were people who thought monks were ridiculous, but um, Augustine doesn't raise these problems. And you must not shut down for the people you're writing the fact that they didn't know how this story to us is going to end. But at the same time, you have to keep in play the fact that you know and that our views are different. Um, but an awful sort of presentist outrage, I think, is very short-sighted. And a historian has to hold the two in balance. I, I completely agree. And, and, I mean, it was one of the big challenges for me to try and tell this story from the perspective of, you know, when I'm looking at prisoners and, mm. and, and life inside the camp and death inside the camp, as much as I could from that moment in time, and I've used as much as I could, diaries written inside the camps in secret, in hiding, letters uh, written at the time and smuggled outside the camps, because these are documents which are written at a time mm. where they don't know how how their own fate is going to develop and, and yes. what, what this all means in the broad context of things. So I have tried to stick as much as I could to that. And that does open up the, I mean, there's, there's constant in the camps, there's constant rumours, no. there's constant hope, which no. is dashed again and again and again. So I think it's, it's too easy to read the story backwards in a way, um, though we, of course, know how it ends. And I agree with you that, you know, we shouldn't be, only presentists. Of course, I mean, it, it also, it'd be, you know, it'd be silly to claim that we're not writing from our present day perspective, whether we are conscious of that or not. Um, in the case of the camps, you know, there are whole victim groups um, which had long been forgotten. Writing this book, this kind of comprehensive history of the camps now, 
uh, allows me to include some of these groups. I mean, we're talking about, for example, homosexual prisoners, um, other so-called asocials, beggars, um, homeless people who also end up in camps. These are uh, people who nobody had really written about. And it's only in the last 15, 20 years that they, they, they are included more in that history. So, you know, it, it, is, it is, and that is a presentist, if you will, perspective. These have only been discovered now. A book like this would have been written 20 years ago in a very different way. I'm also conscious of the fact that the book's going to be written, you know, other histories of the camps will be written kind of with, hmm. you know, perspectives of, of, of a new generation in five years, in 10 years, and bringing uh, out aspects of the camps which I completely overlooked, which weren't clear to me now. All that said, I haven't written this book, um, you know, with a clear political message for today. Um, different people are going to see different parallels or going to pick out different things. But I think it would be wrong for me as a historian to, to start with a, you know, very clear present day message, which I want to get across. I mean, both your books, in, in different ways, do actually impact on people today because they're, they're obviously oh, yeah. survived the Holocaust. And sure. I suppose there are people who for whom Augustine is a real influence oh, of course in their life. Augustine is yeah. a worldwide subject. I mean, there is uh, the living Augustine in order, I obviously diminished um, from some of its greater days in the Middle Ages. And there are many people um, for whom these are works of constant spiritual encouragement. I suppose we both had a slightly similar stand here in a funny way. Uh, mine was easier. You certainly didn't believe in concentration camps. Uh, and I wrote, certainly not believing in God, which is absolutely central to Augustine. Um, but nonetheless, I could suspend, I hope, sufficiently my own utter scepticism to get inside the mind a bit of somebody who very much does believe this. One of my main themes was conversion. People are always uncertain and indeed seem to remain so. Still, what Augustine's famous conversion, the great scene in the garden, unbelievably well written by him, really was. And I had the different problem, not thousands of people to interview or read their memoirs, but one person who uses words with incredible delicacy, and it's very difficult, actually, to be clear now in the 21st century, what is his central point? So I'm interested in this question. Mm. We all know of concentration camp figures of importance who then go and hide and they're in Brazil or they're uncovered in Alaska and so they damn well should be, even if they're 96. And when they come, they turn out to be working in a very friendly way for the local cat's home or something. But I never hear enough about people who immediately have totally repented or have converted briefly. They probably were then put to death for it. How widespread is the phenomenon of people standing up and saying, I now realise, as you would in a Greek tragedy, and this is something Augustine would appreciate, this was absolutely appalling, and I don't know how I can ever make amends for it, from within concentration camp staff. It's very, very incredibly rare to well, find it's that. It's appalling which, that it is. Well, it is. It has something to do with the fact that, of course, these men and a smaller number of women, um, you know, try and go undercover as much as they can post-45. I do have an epilogue where I pick, pick these stories up post-45. And, um, you know, as much as they can, they never talk about the camps again. And, and the only thing that makes them talk about the camps is if they are caught and put on trial. Mm. And given that then, you know, there is a real... Um, 
uh, likelihood, at least in the early, immediate post-war years, that they will receive a very severe sentence, if not the death sentence. Um, you know, they they lie until they blew in the face. I mean, there's there's right. the, one of the one of the extraordinary things I remember coming across is one of the uh, Auschwitz commandants, the the successor to Hess, who effectively says in the interviews with the Allied interrogators that gas chambers, mm-hmm. really, in Auschwitz? I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Do, do tell me. Um, and the, the, the interrogator says to him then kind of, don't be such a child. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are huge numbers of lies um, and you have to kind of sift through that. There are very occasionally some of these uh, perpetrators which do over time speak out a little bit more openly. I have one um, lower ranking man who does admit to a lot of these things he has mm. done, and he does convert actually, kind mm. of, and then strikes up a correspondence with a with a Protestant um, uh, theologian, um, and tries to, in his own way at least, mm. understand or grapple with 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 what he's done. There are still trials going on now, so there are personal connections, um, and that goes, of course, for the victims too. I gave a, a talk uh, on, on, only yesterday where a, a survivor of, of Nazi camps came up to me and spoke to me afterwards. Um, I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago in in Hamburg where the granddaughter of, of one of the prisoners I write about a lot came up to me afterwards and introduced herself and talked to me. Um, so these are kind of very much still stories that are with us. Because Augustine uh, is praying to God. The confessions are an extended prayer. I believe they're being orally composed. Um, I've persuaded some, it's purely uh, intuitional. Uh, and he is, med- he is going revisiting in the first nine books his utterly misguided past. In no way um, is that past in anywhere comparable or even to be mentioned in the same breath as the commandant of a concentration camp. But reading Augustine, you might almost think it was, um, the appalling straying into the vicious uh, slime of Manichaean um, uh, heretical teaching, his sex life, he's now a celibate monk, um, he regards it absolute um, distaste and disgust, it should never ever have happened, and so on. But he's opened up to God and he's presented the story. And there are two views here. One school, of which I'm not a member, thinks that necessarily Augustine will be lying. And large hunks of this are self-serving fiction. I simply cannot believe that. Uh, Obviously, it's very hard for any individual to tell the truth about themselves. And there are things he will have left out which I can't know about. But this is what um, he is doing with great passion and then uh, how God called him and turned him back. Now, is there any uh, interrelation with concentration camp personnel turning to a religious faith, perhaps even Christianity, and leaving a memoir or a huge apologetic memoir uh, and, and begging to be forgiven? And if they did repent, was a different view taken of them? They're kind of like, some of them convert kind of uh, during the trials after they get caught, but that is quite yeah. clearly a tactical yeah. attempt yeah. to curry favor. I mean, that's that happens to the the head of the whole camp system during the Second World War, Oswald Paul. He um, becomes a Catholic and then writes a kind of I think it's called Credo, a kind of a, an actual history of his conversion. And so, oh. but there is but there is no repentance. Really, or anything like that. So it's it's I, I, it, to me these seem like fairly transparent efforts to try and get off the scaffold. 
Um, but religion more generally, I mean, was also something, of course, which which prisoners grappled with mm-hmm. as they were in the camp. I mean, this question of, you know, where is God well, uh, in, in, yeah. in Auschwitz? And you have real tensions there running through the prisoner community. You have some who hold on to their belief. And actually some other prisoners are jealous of that because um, real believers, they think, have something to hold on to or something to at least explain their inexplicable, inexplicable mm. suffering. Um, at the same time, you have others who see those who uh, continue with their religious observance um, and traditions as a nuisance mm. uh, or because they get up too early and wake them up when they pray or because they uh, uh, cause threat for the whole group because they might be discovered mm. by the SS. Or also from moral reasons. There's an extraordinary scene in Primo Levi's um, memoir of Auschwitz where he writes about a fellow prisoner, an older prisoner, who is just spared. He's just been spared during a selection. So the SS periodically singles prisoners out for the gas chambers. And he's spared um, this man, Kuhn, and he thanks God. He prays to God and thanks him for sparing him. And, and, and Levy, you can still read this. I mean, the Levy's book is written yeah. very shortly okay. after the war. Uh, you can feel his anger. Mm. And he says, kind of, doesn't, doesn't Kuhn realize that he's going to be next? And, you know, what kind of God, in other words, is, mm. is he praying to here? So these are, you know, real, real mm. dilemmas, uh, 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 which we see kind of amongst the, the prisoner population. Mm. I suppose one of the commonality of the book is this idea of moral dilemmas because mm. there's a huge number, obviously, in the concentration camp system. And I guess Augustine must have had a great many dilemmas in his conversion as well. Mm. Oh, go ahead, Mr. Um, if you see what the conversion <laughs> was, I mean, absolutely central thread is Augustine is in no sense converting to Christianity. Uh, he was a Christian um, of a kind uh, from infancy. Uh, and even when he deviates and joins the um, criminal uh, in Roman law sect, the Manichaeans, he thinks he's joined the true Christians. That, I think, is a perspective that hasn't always been fully understood. Then he lurches back again and becomes a Christian. And he's got a completely hazy idea, which, quite honestly, many of the Church of England members who go on a Sunday probably have about what on earth Jesus was. Uh, was he a, a sort of superman who then became divine when he died? Or was he a human being with a divine soul in him, whatever? He didn't understand, you know, the technicalities of the incarnation. His conversion is the abandonment of worldly ambition and the abandonment of sex. That's not very easy, especially if you're Augustine, um, who, you know, in modern terms, um, his scoring rate had been really remarkably low. But his reflection on uh, both his enjoyment of it and his discussion with his friends of why they should try it more often too is, of course, absolutely <laughs> unmissable. Um, and that's not very easily done in life. I mean, he dumped the whole thing and had to find some way forwards. He would never have dreamt he was going to become a bishop, going back to your point mm. of shutting down the future. And even as a bishop, he would never have imagined that he would have been built up in some corners into a sort of Catholic bigot who was the root of all the um, evil teaching of the church. None of these stereotypes are really right. Uh, Who invented the idea of original sin? That's not true. And original sin is the single greatest enemy of the human race as an idea. Uh, Okay, we wouldn't express it in terms of uh, the fall in the Garden of Eden, but I'd 
not altogether sure. I think that human nature is just basically a lovely, good white sheet of innocence. Augustine would say, watch newborn babies. <laughs> I watch my children and grandchildren <laughs> clamoring to be fed, um, one rather than the other. Uh, and I think I'm not, you know, a believer in a lovely, innocent white sheet of paper that's corrupted by watching nasty videos. I don't know what you feel about that. Well, it's kind of, I mean, it's obviously something that's been central to the book too. I mean, the, the trying to investigate or probe um, what Primo Levi called the grey zone, that zone of, of moral, to some extent, ambiguity. I mean, what do prisoners think is, do they think of, in terms of right and wrong, of good and evil in the camp? And if so, how do they define oh, yeah. those actions by, by other prisoners in the camps? And, and I mean, one, one figure around which you can maybe explain that in the concentration camps is the figure of the carpool. These were prisoners who gain a some kind of administrative uh, or uh, uh, supervisory function in the camp, be it as labor supervisors or barrack supervisors. Um, and they're quite often in the in the literature portrayed in rather stark terms as wholly evil henchmen of the SS, i.e. prisoners who do the bidding of the SS. But if you probe a little bit more deeply, it becomes morally very, very complex. Um, not every carpo is the same. There are debates between them about should they, if the SS orders them to beat prisoners, should they do that? Should they not? And what does it mean if you take a stand to you? Should you maybe beat prisoners but beat them less hard and pretend that you're beating them harder than you do? Other couples say, well, you know, I, I only beat prisoners uh, or, or lashed out in order to prevent the SS from stepping in and doing even worse. Mm. There's an extraordinary case of a former couple from Dachau, who's on trial in, in, in Munich in the post-war period. And one of the witnesses um, says, I'm still glad that this carpool hit me. I'm still thankful to him to this day for the fact that he hit me because that prevented the SS from stepping in and doing even worse. So is somebody like that a good man? Is he a bad man? Or are these categories which kind of in that starkness don't really help us very much? So I think that's something which which we as historians wrestle with. And I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to set myself up as a judge somehow. I'm, I'm trying to describe this um, as differentiated as I can, uh, again, through the eyes of the prisoners and the perspectives of the prisoners on this. What I'd like to ask you is this. I remained aware the whole time that we are in Roman North Africa in the 4th century AD. Mm. This is a, a, a not a world quite as familiar as you might think. Uh, simple fact of widespread slavery. Uh, so I was trying to put Augustine into a context mm playing off against contemporaries sometimes, mm. because I'm a historian. When you were writing your book, were you asking a question that is not always uppermost in people's minds when you talk to them, is still present? Was this something, in the end, that could only happen in Germany? And if mm. so, why? Okay, we had concentration camps of a time, everybody would like to say, in the Boer War, but that mm. was a different use of them. But did you have to immerse yourself in a uh, whole German social history in order to write the book? Um, up to a point, yes. I mean, my kind of my the, there is. I mean, you know, the, um, Hitler very rarely talks about the concentration camps. He, as far as we know, he never visits a concentration 
Um, and I think the reason for that is that he knows that they are not universally popular within Germany, even amongst ordinary Germans. Yeah. So he kind of he's very conscious of his own nimbus, his popularity, his status. So he kind of tries to stay clear of this. Um, when he mentions the camps, he talks about, and he does that a few times uh, in public, he effectively says, well, it's it's the British who've invented the concentration camps. Yes, this is always so he's, thrown he's, at me by liberal well, anti-imperialist historians. Well, Maybe is, we did, but not well, the same yeah, way. It, it's nonsense. I mean, yeah, only because exactly. something is called a concentration camp doesn't make it Auschwitz. No. Um, there are, you know, the what we think of as, as concentration camps emerge in the late 19th century, around the turn of the, 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 the 20th century, in a colonial setting, they then uh, take a very different form during the First World War. So there are these kind of uh, uh, detention camps for largely civilians who are locked up beyond the law, uh, using often barracks or barbed wire and those mm -hmm. things. But that's often where the similarities end as well. And my feeling in the end, I mean, you, you might get these questions here. In Germany, kind of, there have been all sorts of debates over the years over you know, what is the relationship between the Nazi camps and the Gulag. Mm. And there was a, a huge historian's mm. quarrel in the 1980s because one German historian suggested yeah, that, uh, as Nolte, that in a sense, the kind of the Gulag was primary and the Nazis in a way copied in some way what, what had happened earlier elsewhere. Uh, and my, my, ultimately, my conclusion was that though there are some similarities and parallels and connections, ultimately, all of these camp systems are largely homegrown in a way. And if you look at the, the Nazi camp system, the greater influences, it seems to me, come out of a German you know, military tradition, the German prison system, yeah. and also the paramilitary culture of the 1920s and early 30s um, of extreme political violence against your opponents. Um, I mean, it's, it's worth bearing in mind, and again, many people might not know this. I mean, the first camps, Dachau and others, are set up in a completely improvised way as effectively torture chambers very often and bunkers by SS, the same SS and SA men quite often who had... Uh, run these street battles mm. with communists uh, in the in in the previous months. So these are kind of street fighters who now are victorious, mm. and you know they they brand their victory on the bodies of their opponents. Um, and that is so. So there is an, yes, actually right. a number of these. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at a place like Berlin in 1933, there are over 170 of these improvised bunkers and torture chambers and early camps. Good God. Um, and that really means in some districts, especially working class districts, that there will be one on not every street corner, oh, but every other I street no corner. Idea. That makes this terror incredibly visible, but it also means that these places of mm. torture and terror are set up quite often in bars and pubs. Mm. So these will be SA bars where your local SA troop had been hanging out. That's where they planned their raids on communists or trade unionists in, in, in previous months, uh, and now they bring the terror back inside the pub um, by converting it into a kind of a makeshift uh, a camp. And these places exist all over, all over Germany. Um, but there's no plan in that sense. Most of these sites are shut down very quickly. And there comes this extraordinary moment uh, in 1934-35, so this is early on in the Nazi dictatorship, where it looks as if all of these camps might well disappear altogether. 
by 1934-35, you've got less than 5,000 prisoners in concentration camps. These are not the huge well, sites. There's a constant think, uh, rising graph. No, that, I mean, that's the kind of, I mean, I describe it in the book kind of as, you know, we shouldn't think of this as, you know, like a like a hmm. um, an avalanche which rolls down a hill and, and takes on ever more destructive force. Sometimes it rolls back up the hill. I never knew and and you know these these are also I mean even in the war there comes a point in 1942-43 extraordinarily where the camp leadership uh, the SS leadership um, realizes that actually these prisoners are quite useful uh, economic resource mm. and um, more should be done to keep some of them alive a little bit longer so we have then the orders coming from the center saying you know SS doctors should try and make sure that prisoners live a little bit longer. And it does have an impact. I mean, you still die. You're still very likely to die in the camps, but you expand a bit more work for the Third Reich as you do so. Um, but we have to be alert to these kind of, you know, twists and turns as well. It doesn't. It's not a logical progression. This story. Um, one thing we're skirting around is, of course, unlike novelists, we are bound by evidence, and it's very hard work. Um, I just spent my time endlessly reciting the Confessions, noticing word that had not really been picked up on, which mm. is very important. You spent your time going through thousands and thousands of records. I think that, I mean, that is really where I guess what we do is is very, very different. I mean, for me, it was, you know, I could have spent the next mm. 50 years kind of reading more documents and yeah, testimonies. Yeah. And I always, I mean, I, I used to, I was fascinated by ancient mm. history and that's actually what mm. I started. I'm actually thankful oh. the evidence doesn't survive. It means I can write about it. <laughs> But how do you get around that then? I mean, kind of, I mean, that must be, is that just a lot of passing of individual lines and words? And um, You have to make the pieces you have hang together, which can itself be misleading, by uh, the imaginative um, conjecture that makes the pieces rearrange under the kaleidoscope. And I love that. Sometimes I describe myself as an intellectual estate agent, introducing two clients who I haven't met before, and they get on very well. And, of course, a lot of our evidence is beautifully written, uh, and that is also fun, untangling the exquisite language of Tacitus. The idea that I'd have to go and personally work in the public record office in North Africa for two years would, to my great shame, I think, not be my natural calling. Uh, but then I am an ancient historian, and, of course, I would love more evidence. But you have to be able to run with what you get. And it does lead to one way of writing uh, history, which interests me, but I don't think uh, I really approve of it, which is picking little snippets here and there from everywhere across a wide period and making a huge big thing uh, over the... Um, uh, the moment when somebody had an audience with an emperor, or as it might be, or the fact that X was going to marry Y, and then moving on in a sort of fragmented universe where you get little snippety bits, but no sense of direction given you by the historian. When I ask people who practice this, and of course they're extremely clever and they do it deliberately, they say, that is my point. There is no direction. People like you talk, uh, like something called the grand narrative. I don't think anything very grand, nor than anything very narrative about what I'm doing. But I really don't like this move. And I'm told that it's important now in much of history teaching in schools where you go to the documentary evidence for Anne Boleyn's underwear. 
and you make a big thing about underwear and how women were then oppressed because of their underwear. And the next thing is you might move over and discuss herrings in Holland. Um, spotty history. I really don't like that. I, I mean, for me, in, in parts, I don't know what it's like in your in your field, but I mean, my field of modern kind of modern European history, especially modern German history, is so big now that mm. I actually find it quite hard to say, you know, there is this trend in yeah. historiography which goes in that very specific direction because, mm. frankly, these days there are any number of trends and disciplines and schools and sub-schools and so on. So it, it becomes increasingly hard, yeah. I think, to really see kind of, you know, where the trend, if there is one, is going. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. But occasionally you look at uh, books that are brought forwards and are meant both to be highly respectable and very engaging. Um, suppressed voices, uh, that's also quite rightly been very important. Groups who haven't had their mm. say. The trouble in my world is they didn't have a say. So you have to struggle a bit to give them a say. And of course, also, particularly in my field, the, to my mind, sometimes remarkable faith in archaeology. I think we've lived through an age where um, statements that are texts are no longer treated as if they're the sort of Methodist proof texts from the Bible. But objects that come out of the ground are regarded as having or settlement patterns that may be discernible to some eyes on the ground are, are regarded as being absolutely immediate primary and they're giving us, you know, an enormous um, widening of history. Well, much is being written on this. And, of course, they do raise questions that are answerable, but of a very different type. But I think I live in an era where archaeology is more unquestioned and texts have become unduly questioned. That, I see, as a difference. That was Robin Lane Fox and Nicolaus Vaxman in conversation at the Wolfson Foundation offices. Augustine, Conversions and Confessions, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's published by Basic Books, with a slightly altered title of Augustine, Conversions to Confessions. KL, History of the Nazi Concentration Camps, is also available now. In the UK, it's published by Little Brown, and in the US by Farrar, Strauss and Giroux. As well as speaking to Robin and Nicolaus, I also had a quick chat with Paul Ramsbottom, who is Chief Executive of the Wolfson Foundation. I began by asking him whether any changes had been made in the History Prize Awards process for 2016. There's a few changes this year. We've got a new chair of the judges, um, Sir David Canadine, um, who's been a judge for a number of years. And then we also have a, a, a new incoming judge, Dermot McCulloch, very eminent historian, particularly of religion. The other thing that's changed is the prize money, which has gone up uh, again in value. So I think this makes it um, one of the more valuable prizes uh, to win. The, the total pot, for example, is larger now than the Man Booker Prize pot. Some things haven't changed, of course, the integrity of the decision-making and the types of book that win uh, remain constant across four decades. And so um, I know a lot of this, what the judging process happens behind closed doors, as it were, but do you have any idea what it was about these two books that really stood out for the judges? But of course, they, I mean, they're in many ways, they're two very different types of book, different periods and different types of history. 
But I think there are common themes. They're both grappling with very big issues, not least the issue of evil and the nature of evil in very, very different contexts. But both of them have that quality, which is the quality of Wolfson winning books, which is they're discussing big themes, complicated subjects, but they do so in a way that is accessible to the layperson. They write in a very crisp, clear way. And yet they do all of that without compromising in any way the scholarly standards. What do you think winning this prize is going to mean for um, Robin and Nick? I think it gives uh, publicity to, to these books particularly. And hopefully these are books that will be even more widely read and even more widely discussed and the themes that come out from those books. I think in previous years, it's been quite interesting because um, for some winners, this has meant uh, a a boost to to their personal career. Um, It's helped the university department that they're involved in if they are at a university department. And so I think winning it has meant different things to different authors, partly dependent, I suppose, on what stage in their career they are. For young historians... I think this can often be seen as a kind of launch pad for a, for a very eminent career. That was Paul Ramsbottom. You can find out more about the Wolfson History Prizes at wolfson.org.uk forward slash history hyphen prize. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Archaeologists have begun scanning the land around the ruins of Reading Abbey as part of a search that could unearth the missing remains of King Henry I. Investigators are carrying out ground-penetrating radar research of the Abbey area to estimate the site's archaeological potential. The imaging might show sarcophagus burials, possibly including that of Henry. Henry founded Reading Abbey in 1121 as a royal mausoleum and is buried there along with his second wife and his great-grandson, William of Poitiers. 
In parallels with the 2012 search for Richard III in Leicester, it's possible that Henry's sarcophagus could be located beneath what is now a car park. Philippa Langley, well known for being a leading figure in the search for Richard III's remains, told BBC History magazine last year, What's really exciting is that we know that Henry was buried in front of the high altar, with members of his family buried in specific locations around him. The thinking in Reading, using current estimates of the size of the abbey, is that this burial spot is located beneath a school. If the abbey is larger, it could be situated underneath either what is today a playground or a car park. That option is considered less likely, but if Henry's tomb is beneath the car park, that will be very interesting. In other news, the house where dictator Adolf Hitler was born might be demolished in order to stop it being used by Nazi sympathisers. After years of debate about what to use the house for, Austrian officials have for the first time hinted that the building may be knocked down, the Daily Mail reports. The house, in the small town of Braunau am Inn, near the German border, is currently owned by Jolind Pommer and has been in her family for more than a century. The property has been empty since 2011 and Pommer earns rent from the government to keep it unused. Austria announced last year that they were planning to introduce legislation to allow them to confiscate the property. This procedure is ongoing, but now the country's interior minister has announced for the first time that instead of looking for a suitable way to use the property, they might simply demolish it. He said, We have tried to clear up all possibilities for using it and buying it from the owner, but with no results. He added that for him, a demolition would be, quote, the cleanest solution. Meanwhile, a country manor where Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn stayed during a royal tour has gone on sale for the first time in 500 years. The Grade One listed Little Sodbury Manor, which boasts 12 bedrooms, 7 bathrooms, a heated outdoor swimming pool and a 3-bedroom housekeeper's apartment, is on the market for £8 million. Henry and Anne stayed at the house in 1535 when they were on a royal progress, the Daily Mail reports. The pair visited the manor because it was, at the time, owned by Sir John Walsh, a firm supporter of the king. It is believed that when the royal couple were at the manor, a tournament was put on for their entertainment. The manor has passed down through families over the centuries, and this is the first time in its history that it has been sold on the open market. This week, a new edition of BBC History magazine goes on sale. Our July issue is a Somme special that explores this controversial First World War battle from the British and German viewpoints, as well as telling the stories of ordinary soldiers who fought there. Also in this month's edition, there are articles on the Anglo-Saxon king Athelstan and the 17th century Monmouth Rebellion. Plus, we reveal the results of our 2016 History Hot 100. You can get hold of our July issue now in all good news agents in the UK, and internationally this week in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. As you know, we like to hear from listeners all over the world, and this week we were contacted by John Miller, who lives in Sydney, Australia. John tells us that his friend Charlie Hooper, who is a big fan of this podcast, is celebrating her birthday today, and asks if we can give her a little shout-out. So, Charlie, we hope you have a great birthday and that this week's episode has helped make your day even more enjoyable. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time 
when we'll be talking about cotton in the Industrial Revolution and the tragic story of America's radium girls. Please do join us for that. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>